This is a Research in Practice podcast, supporting evidence-informed practice with children and families, young people and adults. Welcome to this Research in Practice podcast. My name's Rachel Fitzsimons and I'm a Research and Development Officer here at Research in Practice. I'm delighted to introduce today's podcast, which is part of our Families and Homes Change project. This national project brought together academics, professionals and families with experience of housing and social care to consider how services can best support families with overlapping needs in these areas. In this podcast, we'll hear from Dr. Kezia Reeve, Principal Research Fellow at Sheffield Hallam University. Kezia is a dedicated housing researcher and led the Families and Homes Change project. We'll also hear from Leanna Fairfax, a PhD student also at Sheffield Hallam, who has lived experience of homelessness, housing and social care. In today's conversation, Leanna and Kezia will explore the issues from a family's perspective. They'll discuss daily life for families in temporary accommodation, the importance of the family's voice in their support, the experience of bias and judgment, the need for a trauma-informed approach and what can work well in support provision. So Kezia and Liana, hi, please do introduce yourselves. I'm Kezia Reeve and I'm a housing researcher. I've been uh, working as a researcher for virtually all of my career, um, about 25 years so far. And I've always had a particular interest in exploring the experiences of people who who suffer housing disadvantage. Um, And so a lot of my research has been about people experiencing homelessness Um, And I come from a methodological position where we really want to understand people's experiences. And so I do a lot of qualitative research, uh, biographical research um, to try and understand um, what happens to people and and to have their voices within research. And over that time, uh, my research in homelessness, I, I noted how the women that I was talking to did have quite different experiences to the men and these weren't always reflected in the reports and the papers and so on that I was reading Um, and so for quite a lot of my career I've been trying to push forward an agenda that recognises the gendered nature of of housing and homelessness Um, and that's very relevant to issues around families because it is often women who head up homeless families. My name's Leanna. I'm currently doing a PhD at Sheffield Hallam, in which I'll be focusing on women's experiences of temporary accommodation. I have experience um, with uh, in homelessness. I have been homeless several times for a variety of reasons, um, especially in relation to domestic abuse. And I have also got experience um, of working with social workers in the context of a parent with children and also in the context as a teenager um, needing support from services. Thank you, Liana and Kezia. It's great to have you both here today to discuss these really important issues. I'll hand over to you now. Hi, Liana. Um, I know from previous conversations that we've had that you've experienced homelessness a number of times. You've been in situations where you've had to leave your home. It, during those periods, you've um, you've gone into temporary accommodation. Um, I know from research that I've done and that others have done that temporary accommodation can be quite a difficult environment to live in, um, particularly as a family. And I wondered if we could start by you just talking a little bit about what it's been like for you and your family living in temporary accommodation and your experiences uh, of that. My experiences of temporary accommodation uh, were not great. Um, I don't think that 
I've ever really had temporary accommodation that was that was suitable. By that I mean the condition of the property. There was often like rundown, damp, um, like rats, mice, broken windows, hot water not working. And obviously as a mother with children trying to survive in that environment was incredibly difficult, especially when you're trying to like, for example, wash clothes um, because there wouldn't necessarily be washing machines in, in temporary accommodation, um, which I can remember being quite surprised when I got my first temporary accommodation that it didn't have the things that I needed. So that was like the washing machine, the cooker, even just like bedding and things like that. Um and that can be quite overwhelming when you are in a position where you've got nothing and you're being like, you know, you're not being rehoused permanently, but temporarily. And you're in a catch-22 because you can't buy things to put in the property because when you move, you've then got to transport it so that it would be impossible to get a washing machine, for example, because then how are you going to then move it when you do get offered somewhere more permanent? And secondly, you can be moved around quite a bit. So just because it's temporary accommodation doesn't mean you'll be staying there for the duration of the period. Um, you could then be moved elsewhere. What was that like in terms of trying to care for the children? You were talking, for example, there about... Um, you know, just not having facilities. And so just, you know, everyday things that families need to do, like wash and dry your clothes and, and those kinds of things. You know, what was that like? The first period that I was homeless, which I referred to earlier in 2007, um, my children, I think my eldest was in nursery then, was supposed to be, but I never put him into nursery just because we was moving about so much. It didn't make sense to. Um, so he obviously missed out on that period. Um, and then also that makes it difficult because, of course, like you should sort of be getting that form of like respite. I guess it is when they're going into school and you can get stuff done. So I wasn't able to do that. And um I think that like, in terms of like just managing daily life, it was difficult. Even when I lived in a hostel, I remember living in a hostel and um, it, they had shared facilities like the kitchen. But because of the environment that it was in and some of the residents that were there, we didn't feel comfortable eating there. So every single day we used to like practically go out and eat. Obviously, it was expensive, but this was in 2007. So the cost of living wasn't as expensive as what it is today. And I couldn't even imagine someone having to be, and there will be people in that position today who are having to eat out or think about every single day where they're going to get food from and the cost that that, was, that would be right now. I, I, I wouldn't want to bear thinking about because back then it was a struggle in itself. I mean, it's awful having to think every day, like, where can I go? And the worst was like when it was raining, you'd be thinking like, oh, it's raining. Like, what can I do? And you would have to try to think strategically of how you could like get out of the place to go eat and stuff um i think that like that was one of the the worst periods although like i've lived in accommodation which was in really poor um, um condition and that wasn't nice like and not being able to access facilities to cook again that was reliance on sort of um like getting a takeaway but sometimes you could like get a microwave for example or just a toaster um a microwave and a toaster and they could make a few meals but when i was in the hostel um yeah that was that was i think that was one of the most unbearable um situations in, in terms of like doing food and cooking food and stuff like that um and just living in a bedroom with children it wasn't that nice <laughs> thinking about some of the like the professionals that might have been working with you around these times that were helping you access um, temporary accommodation and assessing your situation and, and so on. Um, do, you, do you feel like there was an understanding from them that these places that you were going to, 
you know, whether that was the hostel or the private rented um, accommodation, any sense that this wouldn't be suitable for you? Or, you know, was it just about, right, we have a duty to provide this housing and that's what we're doing? Do you think they understood that putting a family with, you know, several children into accommodation where you weren't going to be able to do the things you needed to do, um, you know, was was inadequate? Well, from my personal experience, I don't even think that even came into the thought, whoever was dealing with me at that desk. It was just like, here's the property, here's the address on a piece of paper. Bye. Like, that was it. Like, there was no help with getting there. There was no help with understanding where I was going to. I literally had three children, like, my bags, and I would just have to go find that property somewhere, somehow. So that would obviously be on a bus, going to areas that I've never been to before. Um, and some of these areas that you could go to, like, I remember going to one property, and when I got there, oh, my God, there was, like, about 100 people in the next door garden. They were just all staring at me, like, and I, I, I walked away and I refused. I went back to the council because it, I just didn't feel safe going there. How old you were at that time, Leanna? I was 18. That sounds like quite a scary situation to be in. I just wondered if you have any thoughts on how social workers might help families. You know, if they come across a family that's living in really poor conditions like you were, um, you know, what what might they do there to to help or to kind of notice and do something about that? Um I think that firstly, it kind of requires the council to make changes to some of their policy or local local policy. For example, if there was an option um, in the priority category that social services who refer people to the council are given a priority based upon their needs, um, then that would help social services to have the power to do something. Um, because I think at this moment in time, I think probably i'm not saying it's necessarily one of the reasons but um because there is ways around it like i said liaising with local charities but they don't hold much power so there isn't actually anything that they can really do in terms of like okay this person is in really bad condition uh, we need to move them um because for example i've had bad conditions before and, and no matter what i've done like even writing to the local mps and everything it's never done anything so uh, they wouldn't necessarily be able to do anything and given like the extreme caseloads and stuff it's like the the time scale of what it would take to do that and the outcome that it's likely to have is probably nothing so that's probably why we're sort of stuck in this situation but if the councils were to put a category in that actually people who the social services refer we um, look at their um situation and you know whether they need priority or not and, and if that social services input can have a weight then i think that it's more likely to work and then they're more likely to work together that's really interesting actually but yeah because when i was asking you the question i was kind of thinking that you know, a social worker who sees those kinds of conditions could maybe advocate to the local authority. Maybe they should be getting in touch with their housing colleagues to say, hey, look, you know, this family is living in really dire conditions. This isn't good for this isn't good for them or for their care of the children. And, you know, we need to do something about this. But I think what you're saying there is that without some actual, you know, policy in place, um, that the social workers actually may not have that much clout and that much authority, even if they were to advocate. So what I was thinking about where some advocacy there might help, actually it might not be enough. Is that, I think that's what you're saying, isn't it? And some, some actual policies and, and proper formal processes need to be in place to give the social workers that authority. 
Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Because advocacy, it just wouldn't be enough. Like, like I said, in terms of social workers, they have heavy caseloads. They're, you know, they're working to tight deadlines. They can't be working on, oh well, if we advocate for this person, they might get put in a better situation. Because you know, it wouldn't, it wouldn't work. They need to know that if they're putting in that letter, that formal letter, that actually that's going to have some weight, and the council have to read that under their, you know, under their policy structure. Um, then obviously it makes you know it makes good reason to do that and secondly it puts the social worker in an incredible difficult situation because if they're only advocating then it depends who they're talking with what connections they have and then it just becomes incredibly complex um so i just don't think that that would work in practice obviously there's agencies like you know you can get referrals to other agencies like i know i did some voluntary work for family action and they do like advocacy work like that so obviously social workers can refer people to such agencies like that for advocacy work but in terms of like making real change i think it comes from the from the how inside of the council they need to create some form of policy in in their priority category that states that specifically um, people who are working with social workers where we receive um, a referral letter from a social worker explaining their situation that we immediately um, reassess the housing situation to decide if they do need priority I think that 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 would make sense Uh, and given the fact that they've got a letter from social workers as some form of evidence that should be used during the development uh, process for the Families and Home Change project, um, you may remember, Liana, because you were you were part of that. We considered a number of um, family journeys that were rooted in the experiences of actual families, and one of the questions that was asked by um, the development process participants time and again was, you know, where is the voice of the family in this? Where is that professional curiosity to ask questions like? what do you want what do you need right now how did this happen why did this happen and to kind of look at those circumstances in the round and really um treat the families as kind of equal experts in their own story um, and their own journey and i kind of wondered if you had any reflections leander on the extent to which you feel like your voice has been heard and that the decisions that have been taken by the professionals that have worked with you have taken account of the needs that you have expressed rather than what they think you need i don't think i've got any experience of that happening other than with women's aid um i would say in terms of like any other agency i don't feel like i've experienced that I've always felt that my voice wasn't heard and that it was never listened to. Um, Even, for example, when I had social care involvement, when I said the children got removed and they'd put my eldest with his father and I expressed my concern with that, the problems with that, the history of domestic abuse and, and drug addiction nothing was listened to um and then unfortunately that ended up with him getting um abandoned at my mom's he never returned for him um so you know my voice there was clearly um i had well with i was well within my rights to have concern at what i was saying was true and it happened you know i had they have listened to me that could have been prevented but they didn't listen um so you know that's just one scenario of my voice not being listened to and there's like i said i can't i can't honestly think of a scenario where actually god i was actually listening to that which is quite it's quite sad really when you when you, you pose that question i was thinking i don't i don't have no recollection of that where you feel like wow i've just i've just been listening to there is it that nobody asks the questions in the first place 
Or is it the the questions are asked of you? You know, what do you need? What's happening here? Tell us what your um, you know views and concerns are. But that then they don't listen. Or is it that the, those questions aren't asked in the first place? That professional curiosity isn't there. Um, I don't think the questions are asked to be honest. Because, like for example, like I explained to you, with the first contact with the social services when they came to my, they never asked me what I need. They never asked me if I was in need or anything. Um, it was just kind of like, you know, what's your position, what you're doing, but there was nothing of like, what do you need? Um, and the same with housing services. When I've approached housing services, I've never been asked what do you need. It's just the presumption that I just need a house, and there's no other, there's no other support need there. Why do you think that is, you know, thinking about kind of how how to change this? So, like, for example, it occurs to me, you you know, you're saying the questions aren't even asked. And so my first thought is maybe if the questions were asked, things would change. Even something as simple as that of of professionals kind of having a sense of what sort of questions they need to ask and how to how to engage with the, the families that they're working with. But how do you think this could be changed in, in some way? I don't know. It's incredibly difficult because I think in terms of social work, it's a bit outdated practice in the sense that they just kind of focus on the children's needs rather than the whole the holistic approach of what does the pet what do the parents need too because I think that I think that that needs to change ultimately. There needs to be more focus on what the parents need because the parents are the ones providing the care if they're not getting what they need how can they be giving to their children what they need um it, it goes without saying that you know they're not going to be 100 percent. they're going to they're going to be worn down the parents so they're not going to be able to provide what they need to that to the child um so i think ultimately that is what needs to change in terms of posing the right questions again i think it's that the the culture of it of, of reflecting upon this is not just the needs of the child we need to work with the family what does this family need as a whole in order for us to better support them in order to provide the conditions for the children that they need i think unless that is done then i think any kind of questions don't really mean anything and also there's still this presumption of like because you're there for the child that if you see things that are not being provided for that child it kind of is a reflection on their bad parenting but it's not necessarily the case like they they might wish like for example in my case when I didn't have a washing machine I wish I had a washing machine I wish I could have done that but in I was washing clothes by hand and hanging it like if that's not a parent being a parent like you know I was trying my hardest in that situation but yet that was used upon me in a, in a judgmental way that like oh clothes smell you know the clothes smell and stuff um, rather than looking at the situation and thinking why does she not have a washing machine? It's not like I decided to sell it. <laughs> like, I'll get rid of it. You know, I needed a washing machine. I just wasn't provided with one. I think that's a really good good example, Liana, of by not asking why is this situation the way it is, you then make judgments about why it is that way, and they're often the wrong judgments. And I th- and we might come on to talk about that a little bit more. I think what I was hearing there, Liana, were two things. One was about reflective practice and improving reflective practice but the other to me seemed like a policy issue about the focus on the child rather than the parent because I guess ultimately statutory duties are about in this context are towards the child and and that's policy and that's legislation Um, and so maybe that aspect of it is is a kind of message more for for the policymakers in a sense that you know children's social care 
need to be able to think about the needs of the parent because that impact on the child. So they need to see that bigger picture. And it seems to me that that's that's a, a kind of policy issue, would you say? Yeah, absolutely. I think that that's why um, I mentioned that because I'm sh- uh, without a doubt, I'm sure there's social workers within the field that wishes that they could do more to support the family, but they're not in that position to, to make that decision. They're not in that position to go ab- above and beyond. And I'm sure that many do want to go above and beyond. But again, restrictions on like the work caseloads is, is incredibly difficult. So they're not even in that position. And I think that's why a lot of social, not a lot, but there is some social workers that leave the field because of this. They're that they're not able to do what they need to do to support the families and to them that has a long-lasting impact on them and emotionally so I think it's important to acknowledge that um, that the government needs to be doing more in terms of for example changing that practice away from just focusing on the children but thinking of the family as a whole and secondly in terms of increasing workforce and reducing the workloads because again that has an impact. It's a credit to you really that um despite all the experiences that you've had, you're still very kind of understanding about the context in which professionals work and the constraints on their own practice. And you're still able to do that, you know, despite not having had very many positive experiences yourself. You mentioned a minute ago, Liana, you described a situation about, um, you know, feeling judged where um, wrongly judged and talking about um, the difficulties, for example, of of washing because of your housing conditions, washing clothes and, you know, without washing machine and in poor conditions and really having to um, work hard to to parent your children and doing absolutely everything you could in that situation of hand washing everything and trying to dry it in a house that's Damp and you know and and the the effort um, and care that that takes, but feeling that all professionals see is that you know those clothes smell a bit damp or they smell and the judgments that are made around that. So I wanted to move into talking about something that um, I know is an issue that really matters to you, and it's something that you touched on when you took part in um, the Families and Homes Change Project. What you refer to as implicit bias. So I know this is something that you feel you've experienced from others and and you talked about that a moment ago and also an issue that you're keen to raise awareness of through your own academic and professional uh, work. So I wanted to talk a a little bit more about this and I, I guess this is about the kind of judgments that professionals can make about families often about mothers, um, I think, and people experiencing homelessness that then affect the decisions that they make and kind of how that feels. So I just wondered if you could say a little bit more about some of those experiences that you've had and, and what that really feels like and how you feel that that implicit bias plays out in some of these issues. I've had quite a few experiences of this. Um, For example, the one that I stated about the clothes, that was actually in the hospital records, in the hospital notes, and the hospital have noted this, and then the social workers then used that for their case in um, in, in improving, like, you know, trying to get a care order sort of thing. So that was without no acknowledgement of my situation at the time, given that the social worker had been out in August and seen that situation and, and, and closed the case. But now that this was now being used against me, obviously when you, you go to 
professionals, whether that's hospital, you think you're going there because they care. And I remember just like, he's had a long lasting impact as that. And I remember reading the notes and I was just like, like I was in tears reading what they've written. Like even just, even daily interactions, like she came in smelling of smoke and just things like that. And you're just like, why? So you're going to this pet place of care thinking that the hospital, the nurses and doctors are caring, but all the while they're just there judging you. And like I said, that has had a long lasting impact. Whenever I go to doctors or hospitals now, I'm very, very, like aware of this and I'm just thinking like what are they thinking like what could they be recording and like for example that gives me like really bad like thing about making sure my feet my children's feet were clean and I always wanted the floor clean like so I used to walk like three four times a day because I didn't want them to have dirty feet because god forbid if like anything happened and they needed the hospital in the night it'd be like why have they got dirty feet like it's just things like that and then um I remember another scenario when I was at um when my children had just got the primary school place when I told you we'd been four months without schooling my son had um he's been diagnosed as autistic now but he wasn't diagnosed then and he was like having outbursts in school um but he didn't have them at home so i was like to the school look there's clearly something going on here at school um i don't know what it is but you know he's not like this at home and she basically tried to turn around to me and said well perhaps because they've been homeless quite a few times it might have had a severe impact on his behavior and also because he doesn't have a garden that this could be impacted and secondly maybe he doesn't feel safe enough to behave like this at home like implying that he was like in some sort of like abuse at home and I couldn't believe it at the time like I was like I was infuriated I was like what are you even saying that you're telling me that because my child's not got a garden that he's behaving the way he's at school how does that even make sense I was I was like I said I was just infuriated and and, and now lo and behold you know at 16 he was diagnosed as autistic and I was arguing and fighting yet again my, my voice not being heard that there's clearly something um that needs addressing with him like there's something like not right and I don't know what that is um and I wasn't getting the support for that um and again you know that in those situations I was incredibly aware of if you ever get social work involvement like can you imagine the weight that that teaches what she what she said would have with a social worker and that immediately then would make the social worker go on the on like the defensive they would be like oh, okay then well you know they, that judgment then leads on to the other person and I think that's where it's really important as a social worker to think critically of the situation just because you've got this on a note from a doctor doesn't necessarily mean that 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 is the situation or the same with a teacher you need to then think actually let me make my own judgment and I'm sure that is supposed to be the case but it's so very easily done that you just you take that voice what someone else has said and take that and put it in your mind and then take it along with you um you know it's just the same way as if someone said to you like oh I don't like that person they're very mean and then you you might not necessarily think that you're taking that judgment along with you, but you're apprehensive at meeting that person because that person said, oh, that person's very mean, so I don't really know if I'm going to like them. Like That is exactly the same situation, but just in a professional role, it's being done. And it, 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 like I said, it's, it's human nature, isn't it? It's very difficult to override that, but it's important that it is. But there is, you know, there's a really strong message in there, I think, for all of us about, when you receive information about somebody, you look at that critically and you consider or you you acknowledge and understand that the person who is giving you that information might have their own judgments, implicit bias, unconscious bias, however you want to describe that, um, that they may not be aware of. And therefore, you need to take that information with a, with a degree of a critical eye. 
um, knowing that those kind of judgments filter through. Uh, you know, I was quite shocked, Liana, when um, you were talking about the hospital notes. And you have mentioned that to me before. And, and I, you know, I can't imagine how that must have felt to you to to read that. But I think what I hadn't fully appreciated was that that was then actually used as part of the case that resulted in you having your children removed. As an example of us all just being so careful about, you know, realising that there are trajectories and an action or a decision that happens at one point can feed right through and has consequences right through someone's life in you know, and you're talking there about one of the worst things that can happen to somebody around having their children removed. Yet, yet that note in that file actually contributed to that without anybody understanding why it might be that your children's clothes might have smelt a bit damp or whatever that was actually because of your housing conditions. That brings us on to our next kind of topic that we wanted to talk about around prevention um, preventative action and you know you've just described there some potentially some real missed opportunities to intervene and support you um, that might have prevented your situation from developing in the way it did you know who knows what the alternative pathways could have been I think most importantly is like people working together and that's like not just housing and social workers but it's also like healthcare professionals um like I don't know why, but counselling and therapy like is overlooked massively. How you can think someone who's been in a domestic violence relationship wouldn't need therapy ASAP is beyond me. That should be the first thing that's ever offered to any person who's been through any type of abuse and trauma because I've never been offered it. I've never been offered it through NHS. The only way that I've got it personally is I was in a position to pay for it because I'm trying to find out, so I paid for it. And that helped. But once I had it, I was like, why have I never had this? Like, you just make sense of things. And I just look, like some people in these situations, I look at them and I just think, why are they not being offered like mental health support? I really don't understand why it is seen completely separate to everything, whether that's like just coping mechanisms, just everything. Like that, that needs to be a priority, I think. There's growing interest um, within practice uh, across different types of services about trauma-informed approaches and kind of understanding and recognising, uh, particularly within homelessness services, but probably elsewhere as well, that, that many people who've experienced homelessness have also experienced trauma. And you would hope that that might lead to a recognition around the need for things like therapy and counselling. You can give somebody everything in the world you could give them a house you could give them everything that they need but if inside they don't love themselves and they don't care about themselves it would they can't accept it it wouldn't mean anything to them so you wouldn't really necessarily see an improvement and i think sometimes that where that's what gets lost also in translation because it's like well we give them a house they give up they left the house or we give them this and and you know this didn't use it they didn't use it because they're just bad people. It's because they've clearly got trauma um, and it's impacting them like psychologically. And that goes beyond any or any other services other than therapy. Like, and that's where they need that service to step up and, and be like, right, OK, we're going to work with you. We're going to do this therapy. And, we, you know, this is how we're going to work these things through. Like, Because how can anyone move on in life if they don't actually love themselves? So I think we've probably covered quite a lot of this already, but I, I wanted us to just have some discussion at the end about what can we do, given that we know 
there are lots of, you know, really good people that go into homelessness services, go into social work profession and want to make a difference and want to support people. But the systems don't always allow them to do that or support them to do that. What changes do we think would really make a difference to to the outcomes for families in these situations? I think, like I said, it's just working together with other agencies as best as possible in the capacity that you can do so, ensuring that you actively seek, reflect upon your own judgments and, and, and think to yourself, actually, what's making me come to this decision? What's it based upon? Where is this thought going? Because when you are interacting with people, you need to be going with a blank canvas. You don't want to be going with any sort of prejudgment of past six, even even in terms of historical context of past work with other agencies, for example, because you don't know that situation. You don't know what that support worker was like. You don't know um, the interactions that they had or what that judgment of that support worker went. So it's literally going, I think it's really important that you go with a blank canvas and make your own decision based on your own judgment of that situation. And secondly always question why things are the way they are and putting yourself into that position and think to yourself I think it's incredibly difficult to do this because it's hard to understand unless you've actually been through um abuse or like you know when you were younger and you've not really had a great upbringing it's really difficult to put yourself in that position but try your hardest to understand that actually how may it feel to have been raised without real love? How may it have been feel to be have been raised with abuse? Um, how must the, how may this pe- person be thinking? Because I think the the moment you go in with judgment is the moment that you will be faced with defensiveness from from the person. I think if you go in with understanding and be like, actually, I can see that you've had these experiences in the past and you know you've explained this to me. Perhaps have you ever thought of it in this way to try and to break generational trauma? I think that's really important. That's one of the things I've really taken away from this conversation, actually, Liana, is is the impact of that implicit bias and judgments, you know, that it's not just bad because it's a bad thing to do and, you know, it makes people feel bad, but it actually has, can have horrific consequences for families and so how important it is to address that. We can't rely just on individual practitioners building good relationships and collaborations at the front line or knowing who to talk to in the housing office or you know that there does need to be some attention paid to developing the systems that enable those practitioners to do that the policies and the systems that enable practitioners to do that is one of the things that I've taken away from our our conversation today as well Liana in terms of what maybe needs to be done but I don't know if you have any further further thoughts um yeah I think I'll extend on especially on our last topic about therapy it just made me realize um the importance of it in terms of services like I said there's certain things needs of families and um, that might go beyond housing and social services and I know therapy service is extremely complex so that's a whole different case that's something that needs to be worked on quite clearly but whether there's any way of which that they can try help families by looking at you know support and um, referrals to other agencies because I know like there, there is charities out there that do do therapy services and stuff like that and um, that might be useful and it's really hard to sort of facilitate your own self around that when you're already going through difficult situations and you've already got trauma it's you know I remember trying to look and it was like uh, I'm so confused I don't I just give up 
Um, so I think that that might be really useful if there was some way that they could create a system of which they know what's available within the local area. I know, for example, because I've volunteered at a migrant drop-in centre, they did something similar. So they had a whole book of like um, services on like particular subjects. So then you can say like, or you could refer directly or give like the list of numbers to them. That might be really useful because it, um, it is something that I've never been asked, whether that was social services or housing or women's aid. I've never been asked, do you want therapy? Um, it really would be unexplained why it was beneficial as well because there can be some stigma attached to therapy. Oh God, no, I don't want therapy. So, you know, that also sort of teaching and understanding like why this may be beneficial, what it could do and stuff like that may be like a great help. And secondly, as well, relationship training workshops. Like I said, I've never been offered that. Having the history that I did with domestic abuse and stuff, I think it would have been really, really beneficial to, to do something like that to understand what a healthy relationship is because so many people in these situations have grown up not knowing what a healthy relationship is. They might not have had the dad on the scene or if they did that was abusive um so they've never really seen what a healthy relationship is they don't know how to deal with things in um in uh, like a healthy way even just having a constructive argument like that's something i've learned through university had i never gone to university i don't think i think i'd still be still rowing in the street at 34 years old and 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 th- th- these are things what other people judge people and like oh look at them like but that's that's it's it's sad in a way because they've never actually been taught communication skills so they don't know how to communicate so they're stuck in this this bubble and i think yeah so i think it's the importance of um of including other services and if there's a way in which you can incorporate that whether that's through referral or providing a list and also explaining to the people who you're working with um you know this is on offer you can apply or i can refer it might take a while but this is the importance of it um and i think that's social care and housing services as well because i think when you're going through homes if it is a traumatic experience i think if we're going to be doing trauma-informed approaches i think it's really important that we acknowledge that what you're going through is a traumatic experience homelessness in itself is traumatic having to work with social services clearly something traumatic traumatic is going on or has been on in the past so it should be something of the first point of contact that you you know that you consider that you know i understand that this situation that you're in right now is um you know it can be traumatic in itself it might be beneficial to try and look out for therapy and other services just just to put it on offer i know that they obviously can't do much in terms of like getting them seen asap because that's a whole different matter but just acknowledging it and including it in services to make it become more normal i think you did mention in a previous uh, discussion that we had, Leanna, that there have been some moments through your life when professionals have have just done something maybe quite small, but that's planted a seed that has, you know, developed maybe later. And you've talked about the way that professionals sometimes don't, just, just as they perhaps don't realise the, the ne- negative consequences sometimes of their decisions and actions. They might also not recognise the positive. So, Liana, um, you you know, you've talked today about your direct experience of homelessness and social care, but I know that you're now pursuing a career in academic research, academic housing research. Um, you're doing a PhD. Um, you've had some research posts as well, some professional research positions. And so I'm just interested to understand why that kind of evidence-informed practice might be important to you. You know, what, what mo- what's motivated you to do research and, and whether you feel that, um, you know, you hope that you can change things through through that. Yeah, so I just wanted to acknowledge the, um, the fact that I've got into this position in the first place um, because I know that 
for many reasons people are not able to do so even if they have the attributes they're just not able to do it because of energy levels with everything else that they're dealing with then I think that that made me realize I want to do something positive with what I'm doing in terms of research I, I thought I think I thought to myself like I'm in a position where I'm able to bring my experiences and others I know others have gone through this experiences to the table to, to able to bring a voice to people who are often not heard it's not that people don't interact with these people but often it's from a position of privilege like people I know I've got privilege in the sense that I'm an academic but I've got the understanding of being in that position myself and very few people are in academia from that place and secondly like education for me has has brought so much to my life um because not in terms of like knowledge in the, the educational sense, but just belief in myself, self-confidence and understanding and loving myself is what it's brought. And like I said, again, referring back to the interactions with people, some of these lecturers have like had a long lasting impact on me. They literally changed my life. And although they won't listen to it, won't believe it because I told them this, but it literally, it really does. When someone actually sees something in you and has a belief that actually, you know what, you can do this, you, you, you know, you've got this skill, you start to see yourself completely different. Had I have not had these experiences, I don't know what position I would be in right now because I know that, like, like I said, my self confidence and my self esteem was in a credibly like low place. So I, God knows where I would have ended up. But again, that's the, the importance of interactions with people. Even in terms of like normal settings, we can still do that now. If we're not judging people, we can see people through the app. For example, I see people um, within my area, like or in, in like on other estates and stuff, and you can see their incredible intelligence, like uh, uh, articulating. Um, things maybe not in the right way in an academic sense or in, in in a sort of like privileged sense but they're saying things and connecting things up in a critical and analytical way that is incredibly like useful but also secondly it's not as common as you would like to think and, and these people unfortunately have been told like they're no good from a young age through education through other services and stuff so that they don't really see that they're capable of such things and I think that yeah so for me pursuing my PhD and pursuing academia it gives me that chance to not only improve myself but also um to provide a voice a platform for other people and I'm really I'm always aware of that when doing my research it's like one thing that motivates me Thank you, Liana. Well, um, you know, I think it's I think it's really great that you've come into the world of academia because it, it could certainly do with diversifying a little bit, um, to say the least. And I think you're going to bring perspectives and ideas um, that we would not have otherwise, and we'll be able to make a real difference to the knowledge that's then generated, and then and therefore the kind of recommendations and solutions that we can put forward. I hope so. That would be really good. <laughs> like I said, when I when I come across people's experiences, even now, um, I've seen people going through certain things. It really does motivate me to keep continuing doing what I'm doing. Sometimes you can lose focus, but yeah. So I hope that I can make some kind of change. Well, I think that's a great positive note to end on. Thank you so much, Liana and Kezia, for sharing your insights on this really important topic. I'm sure listeners will have a lot to take away from your conversation. If listeners would like to learn more, our Families and Homes Change project resources are available on the Research and Practice website. These include a research briefing and practice tools designed to support leaders and practitioners working across housing and social care. Thank you everybody for listening and thanks again, Kezia and Liana.
for listening to this Research in Practice podcast. We hope you've enjoyed it. Why not share with your colleagues and let us know your thoughts on Twitter? Tweet us at ResearchIP.